So the never-ending topic of GI function, you know, the pain, the gas, the bloating, the diarrhea, the constipation, it just absolutely never ends. Thank you, Wendy. This is all about the poop. Uh, I, I've, I've probably done a workshop or lecture like this every couple of years, my entire career. I have published articles about it in fitness magazines. I have articles that I've written for clients with, with worksheets and, you know, do this, don't do that kind of stuff. And, and it's just, uh, it's an incredibly, um, I, I know it's complicated and I know it's painful. And I know if you suffer with this, it's just debilitating, but it can be so much easier if you just know a couple of basic things. So if, if you want to jot down any notes today, I'm, I'm going to kind of unfold an outline for you. Uh, the, the two things you have to understand about uh, irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease, it is that there is a structural component and a functional component. So if you, if you had a notepad and you just wanted to just separate it right down the middle, it'd be structural and functional. Those are the two things you have to keep in mind. So uh, who has not heard of the food mop, food map? Um, the you know low food map kind of diet, F O D M A P. It's all the rage right now. Uh, for my first doctorate in the '90s, I think mid to late '90s, my dissertation for my doctorate in nutrition was the nutritional management of inflammatory bowel disease. Something that doctors, even gastroenterologists at the time, at least more than half of them would say that doesn't exist. You cannot affect your GI system with food, which is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. But literal gastroenterologists told me that to my face. You cannot change somebody's symptoms or functionality by the food they eat because the, 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 the hypotheses at the time was that it's either all genetic, it's either all food allergy, or it's all stress related. They've since taken this kind of disorder out of the DSM as a stress disorder, which I agree with because I don't think it has much to do with it at all. Like even if it's a just a tiny like tipping point kind of issue, it's still not that much of, of, of an issue. It's more the organic food. So true story, a woman came up to me uh, back around those times, probably the early 2000s, she said, I have ulcerative colitis. I've had ulcerative colitis for nine years. I have not had a solid bowel movement in nine years. I run to the bathroom with fecal incontinence more than 20 times a day, and I fill up the stool with blood. I've done that every day, 20 times a day for nine years. And my doctor said, there's nothing I can do. And I said, if you will listen to me and you will let me help you, I think you can get over this. So this is where I have to say, I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor. I'm not trying to cure, diagnose, or mitigate disease. But in 30 days of me just helping her choose her foods better, in 30 days, she had one solid bowel movement a day and never, never went back. It, so again, nine years, 20 to 30 episodes of bloody diarrhea every day. And in 30 days, the only food or, or the only thing she changed was her food. 
and had complete remission. So all of the colitis in the Crohn's commercials you see all day long. I mean, pharmaceutical companies are advertising the shit out of these right now. Um, and, and it, you know, some of them are, are older, you know, anti-inflammatory type things. Some of them are, are blood, you know, in, infusion type things. Uh, I, I think it can even become easier than that. So I want to use that particular client as the, the hard case to show you that structure does matter. In her case, she had literal ulcers in her large intestine. So that your, your lining of, of your GI system, you, you can think of in four layers. So the very, very inside is the mucosal lining. Uh, if you've ever had a, a colonoscopy and they, they stick the camera in there, or you can even go online, Google, Google images and look at this, you know, you'll see, you know, that your GI system just looks nice and pink. You know, you don't see as, as some of these funny commercials, there's, there's a, one going around now uh, where this guy says you can have between like something like 10 and 40 pounds or 20 pounds of, of just old, nasty, rotting poop in your GI system. A, that doesn't happen because everything that you consume comes out eventually. And the mucosal lining of your large intestine, especially, is just like the snot when you have allergies and you're blowing out snot. Like it's it's literally super slippery, coats the entire lining. But if you start wearing that away, if you have a lot of, of gas, flatulence, pain, diarrhea, you're constantly straining to go to the bathroom, you can end up disrupting that. And that submuc or that, that mucosal lining can get thinner. And then you wear yourself into the submucosal lining, which is now like the, the top layer of your or, or the, the, I should say the underside layer of your skin, it's a dermal type cell. Uh, then you get into the actual dermal area. So the third layer are the, the skin type cells that, that cover, make the covering of your, your you know, intestines. And then of course, then you have the, the muscle, you know, the smooth muscle, the longitudinal muscle that actually peristaltically moves the, the food through your body, the waste through your body. So, Somebody who's filling up the stool with blood or even spotting with blood when they go to the bathroom, it, it could be an external hemorrhoid or fissure, uh, you know, rectally, but, but if it's coming from internally, it's, you know, they're already wearing through into the submucosal lining and maybe even the dermal lining and they've got these ulcers. Uh, that's, that's a structural issue taken to the nth degree that I want you to know is possible. So that's why I'm kind of passionate about not letting people think that that bad GI habits are just okay. You know, it's just your thing, suffer through it. Uh, like, no, there are a lot of reasons to try and avoid it because you can end up where I'm describing. Uh, Crohn's disease is more of a small intestine type thing, but also an inflammatory issue. Uh, when, when you let these things go, when you're eating foods that cause all kinds of fermentation, meaning extra gas, or you're not creating... Uh, in environment for normalcy. So we're going to, we're going to talk a lot today about fiber and, you know, the right kinds of fiber and how much and this and that hydration, fat intake, all the things that create the stool matter. Uh, it's still important to remember that there is a structural component. These, these organs, your small intestine, large intestine, even, you know, rectal and, you know, musculature and, and all that you know, th these are important things. You, you, you can wear these things out. There can be disease processes. 
you can have things even like toxic megacolon or you could have, you know, SIBO, small intestine, you know, bacterial overgrowth. You, you guys are familiar with terms like gut microbiome and, and everybody's worried about the bacterial flora in their large intestine. There are structural things that we need to know and we need to watch for. But what your GI system does is processes food. That's what it does. And so there's a functionality to it. The food we eat does matter. So I mentioned how 25 to 30 years ago, when I did that first, you know, you know, literal book, a doctoral dissertation on this, it was, it was controversial. You know, people, you know, gastroenterologists said it's not even a thing. It doesn't exist. Yet now there are meta-analyses and research studies showing that it's the only thing that matters. So that's, that's the whole basis. If you look up food map kind of diets or, or research, they, they've even shown, if you want to look at it as which comes first, the chicken or the egg, it is the fact that you can, can disrupt those cells. You can, you can create that bacterial uh, environment that's not favorable. And that is in turn what causes these disease processes or conditions, not the other way around. So it is all about the food that we eat. You know, that is what will lead to most of these things. Of course, there's an outlying population that will just have a genetic propensity to these things. Uh, you could have a, a weird kind of illness. My, my son went to a kind of a third world country, ended up with salmonella. And, you know, I mean, his GI system was wrecked because of that. And uh, I think he's totally fine now. But but again, there, there are things that can happen to you that aren't necessarily just the food, but that is a tiny, tiny percentage. So uh, the reason I brought up this, this uh, whole concept or, or, or the, the food map as a diet is because you will see that everywhere. As soon as you go to a doctor and you say you have these problems, they'll give you a brochure that says here, do the low food map diet. And F-O-D-M-A-P is, you know, first of all, low, that's important because you want these to be low, are fermented oligosaccharides, disaccharides, um, monosaccharides, and polyols. So basically anything on the planet that's considered a carbohydrate. I don't know why they just didn't say that. Like why list all of those things? It could have been just like low fermenting diet or just, you know, it's so weird. But anyway, so that's the low food mop or food map diet. So the key word is of course, fermentation. Because an oligosaccharide, a disaccharide, or a monosaccharide, those are just the three forms of carbs we consume. And polyols are kind of a separate category that's more of a medium or short chain fats that kind of functions like a carbohydrate. Those are what's you know, all the, the fake foods, all the low carb foods, the you know, polyols are like your glycerol and your things that show up in protein bars. So a, if you want a low fermentable, oligosaccharide, polysaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and all that. So what makes something fermentable? If you cannot digest it, if you don't have the enzymes or the capacity to digest something in your stomach, then as it goes into your small intestine to be absorbed, it can't because it hasn't been digested. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, you're just going to, you're going to, you put that on your resume. You're going to be like a big producer someday. Somebody's Joe, Joe Rogan's going to need a new wingman someday. And that's going to be you. Um, Professor Brunacini in the house. Uh, 
But anything that is undigestible in your stomach gets into your small intestine where it should be absorbed. Now it can't. And so it goes into your large intestine, basically in its whole form. So let's name some things that you cannot digest, like a rock or a shoe. You know, there are things that your body just doesn't digest. Did you know that you cannot in any way, shape or form digest onions? Have you ever had like chopped onions in something and then you have a loose stool the next day and you look and like there are little chunks of onion floating in your in your stool or corn, things like that, the, the shell of corn, you're looking in your, your stool. Okay, looks like I'm the only one. That's getting a little weird. But um, nobody else has weird stuff in their, in their toilet bowls. So it, you, we always think of lactose first because everybody thinks they're lactose intolerant to some degree. So another good example, about a third of human beings don't produce any lactase whatsoever. You couldn't digest a single molecule of lactose. About a third of us are deficient. We have some of that enzyme and about a third of us digested just fine. Like, you know, we were born to do it. So happens to be just the way, you know, homo sapiens kind of spread out across the globe and, and what they were eating. Cause when you're, when you're in a static culture for tens of thousands of years, your, your body evolves, which is an important point to keep in mind as we move forward into how you can evolve your, your bacterial flora in your gut. So, uh, just like lactose is something that's not digestible for a third of people at all and is reduced in a third of people, there are a lot of these foods that, that will only ferment because we can't digest, like cauliflower. You can't digest that. It's too much of an oligosaccharide. So whatever you eat, and you could be like, oh, I'm going to get cauliflower pizza crust. And I'm going to get cauliflower mashed potatoes. I'm going to have cauliflower this, like everybody was on the soy and tofu kick. Um, you know, even, even when you get a package of those biscotti wafers on a Delta flight, you look at the ingredients and it's got soy flour because it's a cheap baking thing. Nobody digests soy well. So no matter, you know, how many doses of, of, is it, what is it? Bino or gas X or those kind of things that you consume those, those over the counter enzymes you're, it's never gonna, never gonna have an impact. I mean, it's literally like pissing into the wind because you're putting in this whole big bolus, you know, meal of things that you just can't digest. And then you're trying to sp sprinkle a drop or two of enzymes to take care of it. So having a low food mop, food map, I don't know how to say that, Kevin, I've, I guess it's just food map, uh, diet, is just to make sure you're consuming the amount of fermentable foods, carbohydrates that you can be comfortable with. For example, I'm the kind of guy who can have one scoop of protein powder, maybe twice a day. And I don't even notice, you know, maybe, maybe I fart once a day or something because of that. But if I had two scoops, or I had my protein powder plus a serving of Greek yogurt plus a serving of ice cream. Now I'm getting all of that dairy. Now, because your GI system takes about 18 to 24 hours end to end, you know, the things that you digest in your stomach can take, you know, anywhere between 10 minutes and 10 hours, just depending on how much it is. Then you've got two or three hours through your small intestine. Then it collects in your large intestine and it stays there for you know, several hours because that's where the hydration is pulled out and so forth. 
when it's in your large intestine, this is where you notice these things because that's where anything that is fermentable, now that it, it escaped digestion, you did not have the enzymes to digest it. Now it ends up in your large intestine and the bacteria there, the anaerobic bacteria consume that. They actually love those undigested carbohydrates because that's food for them. And the byproduct, their waste product is methane gas. So, I mean, it's as clear as that. It's, sometimes that surprises people. You mean it's really gas? Like gas is gas? It comes out, it's actually methane gas. Um, so what we have to do is, is decrease that. And, and you know, there are other studies. If, if we went and did kind of a research review like they've done on previous Fridays and I went study after study after study after study, they exist that show, take anybody who has IBS, you know, anybody just has general symptoms. You know, I have gas, I have pain, I have bloating, I hurt all the time, my stomach's bloated. You just give them a zero food map diet, something where they're not eating any foods that are fermentable, almost every single person said, Whoa, I'm better now. It's gone. It went away. You're, you're a miracle worker. And it's just the foods that we're consuming that perpetuate that kind of tissue level structural trauma. So you, you need to get online and look at what these foods are because some of them will surprise you. Um, you know, but again, remember you don't have to eliminate them completely you have to get them down to a level that you can, you know, because because again, you you may have the enzymes to digest some, just not the amount that you're 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 putting in your body, and that can change. Uh, when you when you start eating small amounts of foods that you may not have even the the gut microbiome to handle, over time, the food that you are feeding your micro your microbiome, that tends to be self-regulating because just like natural selection, the bacteria, you've, we've got hundreds of different types of bacteria. The ones that you're feeding will proliferate and grow, meaning now you have more of them to take care of the foods that you like. The ones that you're not feeding, they die off. Those culture counts go down. And so it is a process of natural selection. You have literal evolution happening in your GI system based on what you consume. So if every day you're just eating different foods, new foods all the time, I'll eat a pound of broccoli today and then not eat it for a week and I'll do this, I'll do that. That kind of havoc is just gonna bounce you back and forth with more symptoms consistently. Your, your inconsistency will give you consistent problems. So this is where you, you wanna have some similar foods in your diet because you, you want that gut microbiome regulation doesn't mean that you have to, you know, eat the same foods all the time. I always feel like I have to qualify these things because I don't, somebody take one sentence out of context, but, but you want to make changes gradually. And, and the good news is our GI system, I mean, we are used to some variety. So if I eat a, you know, I haven't had a, haven't had grouper that fish for a year, you know, I don't just go into, you know, septic shock or something, you know, anaphylactic shock because I ate that food, unless I'm allergic to it, then, then I would, but, uh, but your, you know, it's protein. It gets broken down in your stomach. Your, your pH in your stomach is like two, it's battery acid. It breaks it down and now it's just amino acids and so forth. So things like that don't tend to have major issues, but when we get down to these 
oligosaccharides, these polysaccharides that the body can just get too much of and it just can't handle the load, it becomes a volume issue. And now we are creating all of that flatulence and all that pain and so forth. So another point to remember on the structural side is that since our, our GI system works on kind of an 18 to 24 hour cycle, you know, you've got 20 some feet of small intestine and eight to 12 feet of large intestine, and it takes that long to eat down there. A lot of times people will say, man, when I eat this particular food, I immediately feel pain and gas and so forth. And I'm like, okay, well, that food is still in your esophagus or the upper part of your stomach hasn't even reached halfway down your stomach. And so what you're feeling is the peristalsis, the fact that when you consume something, your GI system makes the smooth muscle and the longitudinal muscle in your intestines move that waste forward. You know, it's, it's wanting to get it closer to the door. And, and so that is indicative that first of all, structurally, if you can feel that kind of pain, your lower intestine walls are probably already sore and inflamed and you could be on your way to colitis or ulcerative colitis. So the fact that you can feel that, but don't mistake an upper GI from a lower GI thing. If, if you eat something and you feel pain because you may have heartburn or, you know, gastric uh, reflux, you may have an upper GI ulcer, like you're going to feel that like it's in your heart. You're going to feel it like a, a heart attack kind of pain. That's your, that's your stomach. If you feel it lower, especially lower left quadrant down between your rib cage and your pelvis, you know, that's large intestine. And so it's not the food that you ate right now that gave you the pain. It's the food that you ate 18 to 24 hours ago. So if tonight I all of a sudden say, oh my gosh, I am so bloated and gassy. What in the, you know, what did I eat? I need to look at what I ate for breakfast and what I ate for dinner the night before, because it's going to be one of those two things. So, so those are some structural things to keep in mind as you're trying to sort out how to feel your best. Now we need to talk about some of the functional things, because if I'm going to eat a low food map diet, you know, what am I going to eat to replace some of those things? How do I know I'm getting enough fiber? How do I know I'm not getting too much fiber? I also had a, a client one time who came to me and said, I have, you know, very similar situation. I have colitis. It's awful. I have pain. I, I run to the bathroom with diarrhea several times a day. It's killing me. And so I decided the answer, this is her telling me this, was to eat better. So now I just eat raw broccoli, raw cauliflower, raw salad all day long. I've gone totally vegan. And I'm like, okay, you may as well just go buy your own coffin because you're doing everything exactly wrong. Everything you're doing is going to make you worse. When you have diarrhea chronically, I mean, somebody can have diarrhea because they just didn't digest something well and it, it's, it's flying out. But if it's day after day after day after day, and then you start feeling that fecal urgency where it's like, oh my gosh, I gotta, I gotta run now or I'm not even gonna make it to the bathroom. You're, you're on your way to inflammatory bowel disease. You're on your way to colitis or ulcerative colitis. You need to stop that now. And the way you stop that is to actually try and induce constipation. So now all of a sudden you want to get rid of those vegetables, especially raw vegetables. Uh, you want to, you want to make things as, as benign and plain as possible. So like white flour bread, 
like the cheapest, grossest stuff you can get, you know, plain white rice, things like that, that will actually create a, a better bolus and absorb water instead of instead of giving you all that that insoluble fiber that just shoots through you uh, like a like a hurricane. So, you know, when you're feeling those issues, that's one of your first considerations is, you know, am I eating too little or too much fiber? Because the opposite can be true. I, I've looked over a couple clients' nutrition logs this week, and and for both of them, like they weren't eating a single vegetable, you know, for entire days at a time. I, I would look at a food log for a week, and I would see one or two servings of vegetables for the entire week. And like you, you do realize what fiber is, right, and why we need it, and so forth. Like we, we. I personally, I'll, I'll give you kind of my routine um, because I want to have, you know, one solid bowel movement a day. I want it to be on a kind of a 24 hour cycle. That's pretty normal. Um, you know, that's kind of my goal. And I want it to be a, a clean, healthy one. I don't have to sit there and strain for 45 minutes. It, you know, you just, th these are, these are important things to understand GI health. And so that being kind of the gold standard of normal GI physiology, I know I can affect that instantly by what I eat. If I have one really good serving of vegetables a day, meaning kind of a double serving, like a cup, you know, a half a cup is a, is a USDA serving size. Um, if I have one big serving of vegetables like that, and I have a, a couple servings of fruit, and I probably get about two to three servings of fruit in my post-workout shake, because I'll do like a frozen peach and maybe a half a banana, some frozen blueberries. Uh, then I, I typically have some other higher fiber uh, starch sources like, like a bowl of oatmeal or something like that. If I've got three times a day where I'm at least getting a solid fiber source like that, vegetables, fruit, or a, a dense grain, everything's totally fine. That's kind of riding the edge for me. If I go into four or five times a day, if I started having a, a pretty big vegetable for lunch too and for dinner, then I can start actually getting some loose stools because now that's too much fiber. It's too rough on my GI and my body's going to try and get rid of that. If I don't do it as much, you know, if I, if I, if I take out one or two of those servings of fiber a day, then all of a sudden I, I, I have uh, incomplete bowel movements. You know, that's when I'm having to go to the bathroom and strain and I feel like I still have to go. And you're just like, you're just bothered by this all day. So, you know, too much fiber, too little fiber. But when you're looking at the quantity, of course, you also have to consider uh, quality. And a, a lot of people, again, think fiber is, you know, has to be these insoluble sources. It's just, just raw broccoli, salad, and so forth. But sometimes it's the soluble sources that do better because A, there's, there's less to actually get into your, your large intestine unfermented. And so it's actually digested and, and creates a, a better bolus in your GI system. So sometimes things that are actually higher in starch, if you look at a cup of lettuce with two grams of carbs or a cup of green beans or broccoli with around eight, then look at a cup of peas at you know 25 or so, or a cup of corn with 40 or so grams of carbs. So there's a lot more starch compared to the actual fiber in those. And sometimes that's better. Sometimes you need something. First of all, I would cook vegetables more than not. 
uh, when you eat a lot of raw vegetables, that's, I think somebody that's just always going to have a lot of pain and problems. The cooking process breaks down some of those bonds in, in oligo and, um, you know, and, and even disaccharides. And so they're just easily, more easily digested. So, so a soluble fiber could even be things like in fruit. You know, when you look at fruit, a lot of them don't have necessarily uh, too much insoluble fiber that's going to sweep through. They'll have more of a soluble source. But, but you really have to look for those kinds of, of fiber sources and start tracking your food in a way that allows you to, you know, just look at symptoms. You know, you, you have to journal these things. Write down every single food you're eating and the time and the amount. So if you've got a problem like this and you want to identify how to fix it, how to make it better, and then look at those symptoms, you know, keep, keep a column for just your symptoms. So you can say, okay, I felt this at this time. Let me go back 24 hours and see what I ate and then start looking for patterns week to week. You're, you're looking for those things that will show you that, yeah, this was definitely the problem. It's super easy when you get used to this and, and you, you know what your, your structure is like. We've talked a lot in the last few weeks about the difference between structure and a diet and flexibility and eating, you know, at the same times, the same meals, you know, as much as you can, and then be flexible with where you want or need to be when you're being very, very basic and you're, you're almost doing an experiment yourself with an elimination diet that's the way you can find things far better than even a physician will for you. You know, they're, they're not going to ask you those things. They're not going to care about what you you've eaten and, and what you can connect those dots to. So you have to be the one to do that. You also have to consider, as I said, that, that starch matters. Uh, I've talked to plenty of keto people, people who say, yeah, I love keto. I, you know, I, I do keto and I'm like, okay, so I make like real keto. Like you're having zero carbs. Nope. Zero carbs. I just eat fat. You know, I stick a butter in my coffee, 200 grams of fat a day. And I always ask them like, what's your GI system like? And they say, oh man, I just like fucking plaster the bathroom wall every two hours. Like I have diarrhea all day long. I'm like, and you think that's normal? Like that's okay. That's an okay thing for you. Because without starch, we don't have what creates that bolus in the GI system. Everything is just going to come straight out. It's nothing but amino acids and fat. Um, I mean, that's just the recipe for diarrhea. And, and then, like I said, you're going to end up with, with all kinds of structural problems because of that. So uh, the next thing, though, is to consider fat. Assuming you're not that far over on the continuum, Sometimes people who are super, super low calorically, and when I when I get women who are you know you know over fifty years old and, and thyroid is is ramping down and so forth and uh, you know besides that besides thyroid hormone itself has a function on motility, uh, calorie intake ends up going down and so now they're not even eating enough per day to necessarily have you know a bowel movement every single day. And so if you're somebody who has a bowel movement every two days or three days, that can still be okay based on your genetics. Um, but you still want some kind of regularity. And sometimes that's a person who needs a little more fat in their diet because, you know, this is physics. And again, when you're looking at what helps something as kind of an emollient or a demulcent, something that actually makes the stool, the bolus easier to pass, uh, you, know, you know, that fat can do that. It actually makes the, the fecal matter, especially the bolus, the, the actual 
you know, what you're eliminating, you know, for lack of a better term, slippery, or, you know, it's not as dry and impacted. So sometimes people need a little extra fat. Hydration is key. Uh, this is one of those things. If, if somebody comes in with all these GI problems and they're just not drinking enough water, that, that could be the single biggest factor in keeping uh, their, their GI system moving. But we do have enough you know, hydration in our body to generally avoid major complications, but it can be something helpful for them. Uh, let me go back to supplements real quick. I, I mentioned at least in my post that you can't just take a prebiotic or a probiotic or something like that and expect miracles, especially because those things are very much shotgun approaches. So imagine you're, you have a certain bacterial flora, a gut microbiome, and then as these labels would tell you when you get a pre or probiotic, hey, take two capsules with every single meal. Oh my gosh, now you're putting billions and billions of these new cultures that are foreign in those amounts to your GI system. That's like just pouring gas on a fire. Anybody who comes to me and said, yeah, I've been doing that. And I say, how's that going? And they'll say, oh, it, it made me worse but yet they still do it because the label or the high school clerk at the health food store told them to. Um, so those are things I tell people they can be helpful, but I, I mean, microdose helpful. Like I I've had people take their, their probiotic and, and open up the capsule, pour three fourths of it out, close the capsule. And I'll say, just take a quarter or, or half a capsule once a day for a day or two and see how it works. And in small amounts like that, I've had people say, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Like, like a lot of my pain went away, a lot of the gas went away. And that's just because they're getting the, the bacteria back that they need. Uh, that can be helpful, but again, you can't overdo it. Some people with constipation take magnesium, but I've also seen them take it to a point that it becomes like a laxative and they create inflammatory bowel disease by taking too much of something that should be just a normal, healthy mineral. Um, other people will take some, um, I don't know, some, some, you know, herbal things like licorice root or something that's supposed to be good for digestion. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it helps you a little bit, but I'm telling you, that's like, that's like a drop of water in Niagara Falls compared to what you could be doing with your real food. Uh, I've also known people who have severe IBD do things like, you know, drinking aloe vera juice and things like that. And again, you know, I, I'm all for people trying anything, but the problem is structurally with your, your intestinal mass or it's functional, most of the time functional with your food. And so correct those issues and you just won't see the need for those other things. But I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up there and, and let you guys ask questions. I know there are a lot of people who probably suffer with certain things and your questions will probably help me review a little bit of what, what I went over, but structure, what's happening in the cells, function, what's happening with the food, and the fact that most research right now shows that just eliminating or reducing as much as you can the fermentable, uh, you know, foods that you consume can eliminate symptoms for most people. It, it reminds me whenever somebody has back pain, they say, oh my gosh, I hurt my back. I hurt my back. It's killing me. And they go to the doctor. 
80% of back pain just goes away within two weeks, no matter what it is, whatever the diagnosis. And so doctors give out the triad. They give out a muscle relaxer, pain med, and uh, anti-inflammatory, just like just like it's candy. Like, oh, you hurt your back here, take this. Two weeks later, the pain's gone, and everybody thinks that the medicine did it. Like, yeah, you could have just stayed home, and it would have done it on its own. The GI system is kind of like that. If you just stop putting in things that hurts it, it will get better on its own. I, I would say almost to the same degree. I, th I think 80% of people could see almost complete remediation of symptoms if they just stop putting in their body the things that are causing the problem. But then, as I said, now we have to replace those with the things that keep normal motility and, and GI health. So, so any questions? Let's uh, let's see who's got some GI issues. This is always fun. No, but nobody's embarrassed about this, right? We just love talking. I have, oh, I have a question. Hello. Yep. Go right ahead. Okay, so this is Rufa speaking. I have a question. You talked about structural um, issues with the lining of the mucosa, and if you're it's deteriorating or it's, is there foods or um, something you can do with food um, to help rebuild that if that is a problem of yours? I don't know if problem, I'm just asking because that's something that just kind of stood out to me. Yeah, it's, it's very much just what you would do for normal health. So the, the, the cells of your dermis in, even inside your GI system replicate themselves, you know, every couple of days. And so you, you have to consider how fast something like that can be healed. If you just, it, it's like, it's like having a cut on your arm, you know, you put a bandaid on it, maybe you even wrap it up a little bit so you can't bump it against something or scrape it and you protect it, you let it heal. But if you don't, and you just like keep rubbing it up against a brick wall all day long, you know, what's going to happen. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. That's what happens in your GI system. If you just you know, leave it alone, it, your body has what it needs to heal. So the only thing that will help it is, for example, the amino acids and the protein you consume, because that's what rebuilds and repairs and replicates every cell. And then, you know, potentially, uh, you know, some essential fatty acids, because that's, that's a large component of those mucosal and submucosal, you know, lining cells. Um, but there are also some things, you know, what, one of the treatments for, for GI distress, especially colitis and, and so forth, um, has kind of lost favor. It's almost like saying, you know, oh, antibiotics are so 19th century. Um, but, but things like, um, I think it's called disodium balsicide or something like that. Kevin may know. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's like, a, I forget what they call it, a 5-sulfa something drug. And it's an anti-inflammatory that is targeted just to your GI. So like you wouldn't take this drug for knee pain. And yet if you have an ulcer or, or just some harsh symptoms like that in your lower GI, you can take this very inexpensive drug and, and, and you'll feel the relief almost instantly. It's, it's literally like putting aloe vera gel on a sunburn. Um, so those are some things that, that medically are helpful that a, a lot of doctors these days really are going for the fancy stuff, you know, primarily because of pharmacy drug reps, you know, whatever they're, whatever's being sold is what they're buying. 
And so now it's, it's just, it seems a lot better to do like a $20,000 a month Remicade infusion or something like that than just taking this little anti-inflammatory. But th those are the kind of things that I always look for. As somebody in allied health, not only do I want the minimum effective dose, I want to make sure it's targeted and we're doing what we can, um, you know, instead of some major, major uh, intervention. So the other thing that I um, recall you talking about, well, what we discussed was the low FODMAP diet. I think that's how you say it, by the way. Um, that's how I've heard it. Um, so if you're having issues with constipation, you, and it, and it's related to inflammation, then that's something to try. Yeah, so, right? I mean, absolutely. And, you know, the irony is you're just looking at a list of highly fermentable foods and your goal is to eliminate as many as you can and reduce other ones that you still feel like you want and just reduce them a little bit. Um, so it's, it's, it's something that everybody should do anyway. I mean, I don't want to walk around feeling like I've swallowed a basketball. I don't want to walk around with just pain and gas intermittently because I'm eating stuff that does that. So I, I personally avoid those things. Like I, I look at bread products and if it has soy flour, I don't get it. I look at protein bars. If it has soy protein, I don't get it. Uh, if, if my wife makes this amazing, like bean salad as a dip, I'm like, okay, I better stop it a quarter of a cup. Like I'm conscious of those things just because I don't want to be in pain. Like I know what those foods do to the human body. And I think that's part of self-care. Is soy highly inflammatory then? Oh my gosh. It's one of the worst things on the planet. I mean, it's, it's a legume, it's, it's an oligosaccharide. And so, I mean, again, like some people could have the enzymes to digest it. Well, it, you know, so first of all, it starts enzymatically in the stomach. Then you have to have your gut microbiome sensitized to it. So you can possibly increase your tolerance and reduce symptoms and keep something like that in, but you have to consider just like what we know about lactase as an enzyme it's a continuum. Like some people produce zero, some people produce enough to drink as much dairy as they want. And everybody else is somewhere in the middle. So that's where you have to decide, you know, based on the foods you consume, like, whoa, that one really was bad for me. This one, you know, not so much. And it's just a, a process of elimination. Okay. Oh I man. Yeah. One, one, one real quick thing before you guys jump in, uh, Wendy. Um, so Stacy, who is a, is a chemical engineer, something like that. She's super fancy. Stacy works at Case Reserve Medical University. Uh, she reminded me too that NSAIDs do hurt the GI. If I take even one Advil, I, I will have the foulest, worst smelling gas, you know, about 18 hours later, 12 to 18 hours later that goes until it's out of my body. And that's just how much it does disrupt the, the, the lining of the cells. I mean, and that's why people who have gastric ulcers anywhere, upper or lower GI, you often just cannot take an NSAID. So, you know, for me, unfortunately, that, that means that I, because I am sensitive to, to those, you know, for me, it's always a Tylenol first, you know, I'll take one or two Tylenol before I ever reach for an Advil because that that seems to do better on my GI. But uh, were you going to follow up with anything on that, Stacy? I saw that you turned on your video. 
No, I was just, you know, even if they think they're taking something at a lower dose, it's still, it, it's the mechanism of action of that whole class. There's nothing they can do about it. It disrupts the, uh, it blocks uh, the, for lack of a better word, cells that help grow and keep the mucosal lining intact for the gut. That's how they work. Gotcha. Awesome. Good, good note. I'm glad you brought that up. There, there are other things like that too. So uh, that's a good class. Go, go ahead, Wendy. Um, yeah. Thanks for the insects thing. I just, yeah, that just answered a huge question for me. Um, another thing, can you kind of talk a little bit about the, the difference between fermented foods and fermentable foods? Because I tell a lot of my clients, I mean, I've got people doing, um, you know, trying to eat any kind of fermented foods that they can get. Cause I've heard that it's supposed to be so good for your gut. Like, you know, kimchi and things with vinegar and, you know, um, even like um, kombucha and things like that. Um, what's, what's the difference? So I'm not an expert in, in that particular type of food line, but something that has been fermented basically means it's pre-digested. You know, some okay. of those, some of those insoluble fiber bonds have now been broken and now it's more digestible so, so something that is fermented, you're going to have that kind of that bitter taste, like a vinegar type taste typically, um, because that's, that's what is helping to kind of pre-digest those. So that's way different, something that's been fermented already versus fermentable in your GI. Got it. Thank you. Uh, some of them can still be harsh in too much of an amount though. I mean, just because it can still be too much actual fiber depending yes. on the product. Okay. Any, any other questions? Good stuff. Guys. Joe, where does uh, artificial sweeteners, sugar, alcohols, that kind of stuff fall into this? So that is the AP at the end of uh, FODMAP. So, and polyols, you know, interestingly, you know, first of all, th that's another reason why when I, when I look at protein bars, if something has massive amounts of, of you know, polyol or glycerol in it, I just don't want it because I would rather have a normal carbohydrate. I don't need them to put 20 grams of this, this shitty fake oil, you know, this, this, you know, MCT type stuff just so that they can claim that the net carbs are lower uh, because those polyols do the same thing. They're not digestible. They are highly fermentable. So they get into your GI system. So now you could have some kind of a soy protein in this protein bar, plus it's full of glycerol. So you're just throwing, you know, gas and diarrhea on top of gas and diarrhea in some of these, you know, cheaper protein bars. But other places that these polyols show up are things like gum. So these sorbitol and gum, you know, if you chew a stick or two of gum a day, I doubt you're ever going to notice anything, but I know people who will eat a pack or two per day. They just keep throwing in a, a new piece. And, you know, you could be getting a lot of those polyols, you know, besides there being some calorie level, you know, some people can end up getting 40, 50 grams of extra carbs from their gum because they're just so prolific at how much they chew. Uh, but then it is typically all those polyols that cause GI problem. Any, uh, any follow-up to that, Mike? Are you, you good? Well, um, I've, I've noticed I've noticed um, the gum is what spearmint, spearmint, and then the morning it's sweet, and then throughout the day, like towards the end of the day, 
it almost will take on an acidy flavor. And just like like is just how your taste buds are interpreting it just from morning to night? Yeah, yeah. Like like if, if in the morning on an empty stomach I can taste the spearmint or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then as I have two meals, it changes its flavor a little bit to me. I, I and and I'm pretty sure about it. I paid I, I never really paid a lot of attention to it, but over the last week, actually, I talked to Tiffany a little bit. Um, I've struggled giving up the gum, struggled. Mm-hmm. And, every, and I've looked up all kind of stuff about oral fixation and stuff. And the first thing, as soon as you look up oral fixation, it'll say, try gum. Well, just so happens, I tried the gum to give up one. Now I got to give up the gum, you know? <laughs> so so it's, uh, it, I, there's not a lot of, from, now what you were talking, Tiffany and I actually text, text each other back after I think uh, Wednesday's call and thought, you know, this is, this is where you start. And, and, and it is, but um, I don't necessarily know that it's something I'll be able to give up in 10 days, but I'm going to put it on a pitch count and then start dropping off maybe a piece or two pieces a day or something like that. But I, I kind of think the gum's starting to cause me more troubles than what I really gave it credit for. It's, it's possible, you know, simply because of the, you know, first of all, the chewing all day can, can affect your TMJ. Um, I think there's an acidity to it. So some people end with almost you know, kind of a bacterial issue in the mouth if they're just constantly doing that. Uh, but then, you know, it, it is, it is, as your taste buds change, just like anything else, you know, you become just uh, desensitized to something. So if you're just chewing that gum all day, Food without it affecting affect meals, I, I think you eventually just don't even take them. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming I, it, it says it's less than one carb, but it also says it has one gram of sugar alcohol, so it probably has more than one carb, correct? Yeah, so you're, you're you know, just rounding up, you're probably at like two grams of carbs, which you know. Well, well, there's days, there's there's probably days that that I'm off on my carb numbers to you by a hundred. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like two grams of carbs doesn't sound like anything in, until you chew twenty pieces a day, you know. Yeah. Now all of a yeah. sudden, had a a bowl of cereal or something instead of that. No. All right, we'll work on that. Thanks. Yeah, man. Good stuff. Go ahead, Steve Dodd. Or Wendy. Wendy's up. Nothing. I got nothing. Okay. I, I saw you had unmuted. <laughs> Sorry. I think Steve saw that too. Steve unmuted. Then he saw you unmute. I'll he, mute. No back undercover. Go ahead, Steve. You there, Steve? Yeah. Sorry. This baby was trying to call in. I couldn't get it shut off. Uh, hey, why, why do so many doctors just start loading people down with Metamucil three times a day and then stacking that with Colace because they can't go and Miralax. Why why is that so often in in this? I hear it so much from my clients over 15 years. And, you know, because I'm not a doctor, I'm not able to really say much to them. But, um, you know, and, you know, my mom, that's repetitively every doctor has ever told her the exact same thing. 20 of them 
for 20 years, the doctors are all telling her the exact same thing over and over. Metamucil, 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 uh, collates when you can't go. Then when you got diarrhea, take Metamucil. And like, she's just back and forth to both. Yeah. So I'm so glad you brought this up. Uh, huge oversight on my part to not even talk about those particular supplements. So, so a good way to wrap us up at the top of the hour here. Um, th- those are different fiber sources. So, so Metamucil is psyllium, which is a very absorbent, harsh fiber, uh, meaning that it is highly fermentable. So anybody who takes Metamucil is going to have a massive amount of flatulence from it but you're kind of trading one evil for the other because it is so absorbent. If you took just a paper cup or a Dixie cup and you, you put in a scoop or two of, um, you know, whatever dose you think you would be taking of, of psyllium or Metamucil, and then you put in a half a cup of water, a cup of water, like you'll, you like a science experiment. You'll see that thing like grow up over the, the cup and pretty soon it's like going over your table. Uh, because it's so absorbent. And, and, and so that creates a stool. If somebody is not having a solid stool, they can take a lot of psyllium and, and they'll, they'll poop out these turds that they're like taking pictures of and posting. Like they're so proud, like, oh my gosh, this is the best bowel movement I've ever had. The problem is that is just temporary because that's just the Metamucil. So you pass that and then you're right back to where you started. And it may be good to get people, you know, just, just GI motility kind of moving a little bit. But I, I have heard just recently somebody say, oh, yeah, my doctor has me taking Metamucil like three times a day with every single meal. And I'm like, wow, like, I can't believe you don't live in the bathroom. Um, like, but it's uh, it, it's something where it, it's dose dependent. So if you need just a little bit of fiber, you know, instead of taking a scoop or a heaping tablespoon, take like half a teaspoon, mix that with water, have that with breakfast. Again, minimum effective dose, start small and then build. I will often have people use sugar-free citrus cell because that's a cellulose. So it's not as potent, but it's also not as harsh. So you give up some of the harshness and the volume for something that's not going to give you as much gas. So I've had a lot of people do better if they're going to just supplement with one, one thing a day, like I've got my vegetables figured out. I got my fruit figured out. I've got my starchy carbs figured out. Like everything is as good as possible. Still could use just a little more fiber. I'm not quite as regular as I want. That's when something like a, a scoop of sugar-free citrus cell, and then maybe just half a teaspoon of Metamucil, like mixed together with your breakfast. Cause you want to start to train your body to go to the bathroom once a day, you know, preferably in the morning you know, that can be helpful. But I will also say, I think you can do without it. I think you can still find the food sources. So if I ever feel like my GI system just needs more fiber, sometimes I'll do something like replace just a starchy carb with a couple spears of dried mango or especially dried papaya. It's got an amazing amount of, of soluble fiber and it, and it creates a great stool. Um, so again, if you have to take a supplement, start small, I would kind of baseline it with citrus cell and then add a little bit of Metamucil, but I really do think most people can figure it out with food. And, and then, um, compiling that scenario with someone who refuses to drink water 
is just a disaster waiting to happen for constipation. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just somebody who doesn't care. If, if they're not willing to do the work, then they're just going to keep suffering. And, and that's why then they have to take the colates. Yeah, because now you're now you're giving yourself a laxative, which is now training your body to just have more diarrhea. And now you're disrupting your gut microbiome even more so that something like that as a course of treatment is just going to make you worse in, in an emergency situation. Sure. But as a as a course of just living, that's not acceptable.